The topic we're going to find here this morning, Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palm branches. The title of the message, Palm the King on the Donkey. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful to be here. I know I probably say it about every week, Lord, but I'm reminded that you are here with us in a very special way. You promised to walk among your candlesticks, and then you told us in the Revelation that the candlesticks represented the churches on the earth. And so though we can meet with you anywhere, anytime, though we have access to the throne of grace 24-7, you say you'd be here in a special way when we gather together in your name as your church. We're doing that, Lord, and having done so, we expect your spirit to teach us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. How many horses you got under the hood? I can't help but think muscle cars when I hear horsepower. Number one on most 1970s lists is the Chevrolet Chevelle SS454, 450 horsepower, Muncie four-speed transmission, 12-bolt rear end with positive traction, F41 heavy-duty suspension, functional cowl induction hood. <laughs> I have no idea what any of that means. I looked it up. My 2019 Toyota CHR tops out at 140 horsepower. I've never had anybody come up to me at Save Mart and said, hey, pop that hood for me, would you? I want to see, what's, want to see that power plant you got going under there. I've never even looked at the motor. I just assumed there is one because something happens when I shift into drive. Horsepower was adopted as a measurement in the late 18th century by Scottish engineer James Watt. If you're wondering, yes, the Watt was named after this Scotty engineer. He needed a way to compare the output of steam engines with the power of workhorses being replaced by them. You don't hear too much about donkey power. One DP is one-third of one horsepower, or the equivalent of 250 watts. Donkey power of another kind is on display in the text. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The spiritual donkey power of that moment was off the charts immeasurable, as we'll see. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your king came on a donkey and conquered. And number two, your king is coming on his horse to claim. Let's take a look at our king on the donkey in verses 12 through 19. Here's a new idiom that we can adopt as Christians. Don't put the horse before the donkey. Jesus is coming in the future, riding upon a heavenly horse. In chapter 19 of the Revelation, we are told, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. It's Jesus in his second coming. When the Lord returns, he easily defeats the armies of the world in the Valley of Megiddo at the Battle of Armageddon. He establishes his throne in Jerusalem, from which he reigns with a rod of iron for the next millennia. Did something go wrong at his first coming? Did Jesus not get it right and have to circle back? Well, no. 
Jesus had donkey business to conclude before he would claim the kingdoms of the world. He had to conquer some pretty powerful foes, sin, Satan, and death among them. They had reigned over humanity since our parents disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. In verse 31, we read that Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus said that in the Gospel of John when he was on the earth, and so Satan was still the ruler of this world at that time. How could a holy God judge sin but not condemn sinners to the eternal penalty that they deserved? He must die in their place, thereby remaining just while being able to justify those who believe. And so God justifies sinners and declares them righteous. If you're a Christian, it's because uh, God has declared you righteous, though you continue as a sinner. But he has died for you in your place, and he can declare you justified. Matthew wrote that Jesus came lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Seems as if every day a friend on social media posts a picture and says, caption this. How would you caption this picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey? Well, I think Matthew's word lowly is the word to caption it and capture everything there is about it. Lowly could caption Jesus' entire campaign against sin and Satan and death. In eternity past, Jesus humbled himself by volunteering to become a man. He became man, the God-man, by adding humanity to his deity via the virgin birth. His lowliness is described by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Remember here, we're talking about the Son of God, the third, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, and Paul says, being in the form of God, being God, he did not consider it something to be held onto, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Lord steps forward in eternity past, and he says, I will go, I will volunteer. And he comes and adds humanity to his deity and is forever the God-man. Uh, and it's a lowly position, obviously, if you've ever been to heaven. Uh, and if you're very God of very God, it's a, it, there's a lowliness about Jesus' entire ministry and life. From the point at which he is conceived, lowly can describe him up until his second coming, pretty much. Uh, and this is what is being brought across to us in his riding of the donkey. He was the king when he entered Jerusalem. The fact they didn't crown him king didn't take anything away from him being the king. In his first coming, lowliness by obedience was his greatest weapon. The humble, lowly donkey is the perfect steed, really the only steed for the Savior. The next day, verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The feast is Passover, 
On Friday, Jesus would be examined by the religious authorities and be found faultless, right when the priests were examining the lambs in the temple, finding them without spot or blemish for the sacrifice. And then Jesus would die at the exact moment the lambs in the temple were being sacrificed as the final once-for-all Lamb of God who gives his life for the sins of the world and takes them away. The crucifixion was no miscalculation. Throughout his ordeal, Jesus was in charge, right up to dismissing his own spirit. Jesus was born to die on the cross. It was mission critical. Branches of palm trees had only recently become a prominent national symbol of Israel. 150 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first what we call Palm Sunday, the Jews celebrated a deliverer with palms. Simon Maccabeus expelled the Syrian forces from the temple and Jerusalem. In the does not belong in the Bible history book of 1 Maccabees, we read, and Simon entered into Jerusalem the three and twentieth day of the second month in the 171st year with thanksgiving and the branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals and with vials and hymns and songs because there was destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. Palms were additionally used to celebrate Simon's brother, Judas Maccabeus, when he rededicated the sanctuary after it had been profaned by Antiochus Epiphanes. The Palm Sunday crowd looked at Jesus, but the Messiah they saw was more like a Maccabee. They were expecting another Maccabee uh, to come and deliver them from Rome this time. One historian commenting on the carnage of World War I wrote, in the course of four long years, one of the most iconic weapons was responsible for a massive amount of death and debilitating injury, the machine gun revolutionized combat efforts, quickly drove out nations with their horse-drawn carriages into submission. A donkey, not a horse, was the weapon Jesus used to drive out sin, Satan, and death. That's what he rode onto the field of battle in the unseen realm against these fierce foes. Vincent de Paul wrote, the most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility, for as he does not know at all how to employ it, neither does he know how to defend himself from it. I love that. The devil cannot be humble because he is filled with pride and he doesn't know what to do with the humble man. And so Jesus in his humility uh, cut the legs out from under Satan and defeated him at the cross. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's all from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm celebrating the Lord coming to save or to save now. That's the meaning of Hosanna. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Matthew, one of the disciples, a former tax collector, probably pretty good at inventory and counting things. He mentions two animals a donkey and a colt. Probably the colt and the female donkey were brought to Jesus and both made the trip to Jerusalem. Donkey trainers recommend you not ride a donkey in its first year. Anybody a donkey trainer here today that can verify that? I took a chance. Since the colt had never been ridden or even sat upon, as stated by Mark and Luke in their Gospels, its dependence upon its mother, very understandable, 
The journey to Jerusalem with the multitudes of people pressing Jesus and shouting would have been very difficult for the colt if the mother donkey had not been around. And so just an interesting tidbit. At the same time, I like to throw those things in because people are always trying to trip up Christians and say, well, there's this contradiction that ruins the entire Bible story. Matthew says there were two donkeys and everybody else says one. Those guys were so idiotic they didn't know the difference between two and one. Well, there's always an explanation. There's tons of books out there, you know, difficult sayings of the Bible or Bible problems, and uh, there are none. They're just things to think about. And so verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Jesus was glorified by the entirety of the events, the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. And these guys, for whatever reason, they weren't thinking about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, and, you know, no one was saying, oh, here's what's going on. Uh, you know, they, they had their own mindset. Uh, also, they were unaware that they were participating in the fulfillment of prophecy. So are we participating, but we are aware of it. Jesus promised to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower believers and his church on earth. We go in that power and make disciples. That's our great commission. It is like being in our own paragraph of the book of Acts. It's been said by many teachers of the book of Acts that it never really ends. You, you get to the end of the book itself, but it goes on throughout the church age. And all of us have some uh, part in it as Christians who have been born in that age. Uh, probably a paragraph, or maybe you'll make the appendices. I'd settle for a footnote. Uh, but we're there nonetheless, and it's, it's exciting to live in this era, in this age. It's unlike no other, or like no other, excuse me. Verse 17, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. You had real street cred if you were among those who had witnessed Lazarus come out of the tomb. Talking to one of them was as close as you could get to being there yourself. And that's why sometimes you watch these documentaries and they, in, they uh, uh, interview people who were there at whatever tragedy or whatever event it was, I was there. A lot of people want to be at events. Uh, you're, I had a friend, well, lots of friends, but this one particular guy I'm thinking of uh, was at uh, New, uh, Times Square in New York uh, when it you know, the year 2000, when it turned over to 2000. And you remember when all the computers failed and the world came to an end? Uh, that year, 2000. And not only would I not want to be in Times Square ever, uh, but, and not only on New Year's Eve, but not on that New Year's Eve. I finally got him to admit to us that it was miserable, uh, but, which it is. You know, there's no bathrooms, it's freezing cold, uh, that kind of thing. But it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I just keep hoping, telling people, I'm going to have my experiences in heaven uh, and they're going to be, you know, eternal, uh, you know, because I'm just, I'm just a homebody when it comes to stuff like that. You want to go to a big event with a crowd? You're from Woodstock or what? I mean, you know, I mean, what, they're all lame. Anyway, for this reason, the people also met him, verse 18, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Sanhedrin forbid it, but Jews ignored them and met Jesus anyway. Raising a man from the dead overcame their fear of excommunication. I mean, how often do you get to talk to Jesus, the one who is claiming to be the Messiah, and who raised a man 
from the dead. Rising from the dead, Lazarus was a sign that Jesus was their Messiah. A few thousand years later, it remains a sign. There's people who probably say, well, you know, if Jesus would cause people to rise from the dead now, I'd believe in him. How many people do you have to raise from the dead to prove that you can raise people from the dead? One. Jesus did more than that. And what I'm saying is, he doesn't need to raise anybody from the dead now. He could. I've heard stories around the world in the ensuing centuries where it has happened. I believe that. But this sign of Lazarus coming out of the tomb, it's a history thing. It happened. It's more sure than Hitler killing himself in his bunker, which we all know didn't happen because he's in Buenos Aires right now running a Whole Foods with Amazon Scan. But anyway, no. That's sensationalism. But uh, do you know what I mean? I mean, Jesus rose this guy from the dead. It's a historical fact. What more can he do? It's a matter of unbelief, not lack of facts. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, verse 19, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world is an exaggeration meant to emphasize their frustration. It's like us saying everybody or nobody. Nobody came, or, there, or, you know, here's a better one. How's Disneyland? Everybody's here today. Because it's super crowded, you say, man, nobody's here. Well, you don't mean that. It's an exaggeration. No matter what they had attempted, Jesus continued to thwart them. There is one thing they would not try which would have solved everything, believing Jesus and coming into salvation. When you look to Jesus, that's like a phrase we sometimes use, however you want to phrase it, you're looking to Jesus. Is it as the king on his donkey? The church age is a time of spiritual warfare against desperate, conquered powers in an unseen realm. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, we're told, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. God's power is revealed in our weakness. We fulfill the sufferings of Jesus Christ. To die is gain. The word for witness is martyr. Every believer is a martyr in that sense, and some will actually experience martyrdom. Lowly is a one-word caption of our life while we're waiting for Jesus. It should be the caption of the church age. We are to be lowly the way he was, yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit who enables us to obey God. I came across a quote. I wasn't going to use it, but I think I will. Uh, I don't want to, you know, say anything bad about megachurch pastor, but I'll just give you his initials. They're Joel Osteen. Uh, He has a quote I found that says, if Jesus came today, he'd be coming in a jet. It's everything you need to know about that. And, uh, you know, Jesus didn't come today. He came at just the right time so that his preferred transportation would be a donkey and we could learn about his lowliness. Your king is coming to claim. Tick, tock, tick, tock. There's something eerie and ominous about a ticking clock. The countdown clock on the show 24 is called by many the most stressful in television history. I don't know if there's any 24 fans, but it's like, oh, what are we going to do? We'd click up to the next hour. More to home, tick-tock the crock, terrifies Captain Hook, right? Ticking clock. Jesus said the hour has come. Only hours remained before his crucifixion. It was ticking down. 
Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Often in the New Testament, the term Greeks refers to Gentiles who come from a part of the Greek-speaking world. In the Bible, if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile, okay? I didn't know that for years, you know, growing up as a Christian. I never understood what a Gentile, nobody seemed to want to explain it, or, and so I thought, well, it can't be important. I thought they came from the nation Gentilia for, uh, who knows, you know, Gentiles. Uh, but instead, uh, a gen everybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile, and these were Greeks. They were from the Greek-speaking part of the Gentile world as opposed to all the other uh, parts of the Gentile world. And so they came and they wanted to see Jesus. And a lot of pastors have this in their pulpit, by the way, this phrase here, we want to see Jesus or show us Jesus. There's different manifestations of it to remind us that we want to be talking about the Lord uh, and revealing him on every page of Scripture. And so they came to Jesus, and they represent Gentiles coming to Jesus and being saved in the church age. Uh, verse 21, it came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It was because he was from Bethsaida that these Greeks approached Philip instead of one of the other disciples. Why that was important, we're not really told. Uh, one day at Disneyland, I'm walking along, and I hear, Hey, Calvary Chapel! It's a popcorn vendor in New Orleans Square, and so I went over because I had one of our award-winning Calvary Hanford t-shirts on, and uh, he felt comfortable in shouting out to me, thinking that it wasn't a thrift shop t-shirt, that I, you know, that I probably knew something about Calvary. And so we had a really nice, short conversation. Uh, and so I thought, okay, you know, so he felt comfortable yelling out. So maybe Philip had on his University of Bethsaida sweatshirt or a ball cap, you know, uh, something like that, by which these Greeks said, hey, this is a guy that we can talk to. Philip came and he told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip decided to solicit Andrew for help. It, we're not told, but it seems like they were a little bit hesitant uh, to go directly to Jesus, or at least by himself. Jesus didn't really break down to the disciples exactly how Gentiles would fit into God's plan. He said he was sent to his own, or to the lost sheep of Israel, and so it, it was a hard call for them to determine whether or not Jesus wanted to talk to Gentiles that day or that week. Kudos to them for deciding it was better to err on the side of grace and bring them to Jesus. I, I don't know what they said, but finally they came to the conclusion, hey, we need to bring these guys to Jesus. Let him decide. If he doesn't want to talk to them, he'll make it clear, but maybe something's going on here. And just a reminder to us, if you're going to make an error, I'm not talking about sin. Sin is a whole other topic, but when you have a decision to make and you're thinking, should I do this or not do this? Always err on the side of grace. Be gracious to people. Open the door for them. Let them come through. That kind of thing. We, we too often err on the side of legalism. We, I don't want to be wrong. Okay, I understand that, but God wants to be gracious. Do you understand? I do, and I think you do too. God is gracious to us every second of every day. I deserve to be struck by lightning probably right now. And so do you in, in that sense. You know, and I'm exaggerating, obviously. But, and God says, no, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to strive with Eugene because my grace is sufficient for you. And uh, you may not be making much progress, but I've promised to finish you. And so uh, I'm going to be gracious. 
Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour is the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, all of which contribute to his being glorified. He'll be the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. In so doing, he is called the firstborn from the dead. Then he's followed by his believers in various stages, being resurrected and raptured. It's all so glorious to think about. Jesus coming out of the tomb and, and guaranteeing our future resurrection, our time in eternity with glorified human bodies. No tears, uh, no sin, and no sadness, all of those things. That, you know, the things that you, you sit around all day and talk about what won't be in heaven. That's maybe a nice exercise. I never really thought about that before. But, you know, people say, well, we don't get a big description of heaven. It's, there's some nice things said in the Revelation about heaven and what it's going to be like. But maybe you should say, well, what is not going to be in heaven? And, man, what a list uh, of, of terrible, awful, heinous things that are not going to be in heaven because of Jesus rising from the dead and we following. When Israel as a whole rejected Messiah, the gospel went out to the Gentiles. It is still going out to the whole world as we await the Lord to return for the church. After the resurrection and rapture of the church, God re resumes his direct dealings with Israel during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. One of the Old Testament names for the Great Tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. That's in Jeremiah. When you read about the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 through 18 and 19 kind of parallel each other, you find out that the, it's clear that the Jews are the focus of those years. God has suspended his direct dealings with the nation of Israel, his prophetic dealings as spoken of in the book of Daniel, and he will pick them up again after the church is removed. Verse 24, most assuredly I'd say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus' death was the germination of life for a great harvest. The harvest continues in the church age, and it continues in the great tribulation. Uh, we saw that in our studies in the book of the Revelation. It's a time of mass evangelism. And it, it continues in the millennial kingdom. Even with perfect conditions, people will need to receive Christ as their Savior. Our God is a long-suffering God who reaches out to his creation to save us. He is really, really not willing that any should perish, though many will, because of their own wickedness and sinfulness and unbelief in his sacrifice. Our God saves. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We don't like these kind of sayings. There's another place where it says you should hate family members and love the Lord. But here's the deal. Idioms can mean something different than what the words themselves mean. And we, we understand that if we know the idiom. For example, sometimes when the worship team is coming out, I'll say, break a leg. Well, nobody so far has cried or whimpered about it and said, Pastor Gene wants us to fall on stage and break a leg. Everybody understands that's some kind of crazy theatrical term for good luck. Break a leg. Well, this is idiomatic. The love-hate contrast reflects a Jewish idiom that articulates preference, not hatred. And so he's saying, hey, remember, you prefer the love of God. And you prefer it even over human love, even the parental love, even any kind of love. The love for God is the greatest love. D.A. Carson writes, the person who loves his life will lose it. 
It could not be otherwise, for to love one's own life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights. It's a brazen elevation of self to the apogee of one's perception, and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. It's the Sinatra syndrome. Remember Frank Sinatra, he sang a lot of famous songs, obviously, but one is My Way, written especially for him and his rebellion against God, really. I don't know if you remember the lyrics. What is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has nothing. Not to say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows. I did it my way. Man, not a good argument at the throne of uh, the great white throne. Let's have a few bars of my way now, Frank. I'm not saying Frank Sinatra went to, I don't know what happened in the final moments of his life. Uh, but as an example, you don't want to go before the Lord and say, I have something I'd like to say. I know I belong to you and you're the Lord of glory, the creator of all things. I know you died for me, but I did it my way. Okay, see how that works out. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. A Christian follows Jesus in lowly living that results in heavenly honor. That's what Jesus modeled throughout his life and in his death, and so can we. Andrew Murray writes, fellow Christians, do let us study the Bible portrait of the humble man. And let us ask our brethren and ask the world whether they recognize in us the likeness to the original. Historians divide history into eras or ages. There's no one agreement on it, but you know what I'm talking about. The Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, all examples of eras or ages in the United States. I got to thinking about this separately off subject, but uh, if you're going to talk to your kids about stuff like this, understand that they don't know what you're talking about. I remember when I was growing up, you know, I'd hear every now and then uh, something about the Roaring Twenties. Was it really loud? <laughs> I, I mean, did people go around roaring at each other? <laughs> you know, is that it? I, I didn't, I couldn't grasp it at all. The Cold War was something else I couldn't quite get. Was it all fought in Alaska, in Russia? Who would want to fight a Cold War? Why can't we? And there was never a warm war. There was never a hot war. There was only the Cold War. And so, and then I realized I don't even understand these things as an adult, and that's why adults don't explain them. They just say, hey, shut up. They'll teach you that at school. Uh, but historians divide history into these eras. We often use the term the church age. It started with the coming of God the Holy Spirit on the disciples gathered in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. That's the basic beginning in terms of this age. It ends when Jesus returns in the sky to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. The Great Tribulation and then the Millennium are two following ages, and then eternity is not an age, really, it's just eternity. After we are resurrected and raptured, we read in the Revelation, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is going to be the roaring whatevers, right? When this happens, there's going to be some kind of roaring going on. Jesus was donkey king in his first coming. He was the incarnate God-man who crushed persons and powers in the unseen realm by his lowliness. 
His display of obedience to God the Father by dying on the cross after a life of lowliness, that's the only way mankind could be redeemed and creation set right. If the Lord had come on his horse the first time and defeated Rome, we'd still be in our sin. We'd still be in the predicament that we're in. Uh, we, we wouldn't be saved. And so he came and set everything right. He is coming on his white horse, and we will follow with him on our own steeds. 1962. Anybody here born uh, before 1962? Well, most of us, yeah. After 1962? Anybody heard of Chubby Checker? I'm going to go with it anyway. In 1962, when I was alive, and it was a great time during the Cold War, Chubby Checker had a hit record. What a silly name that is. Oh, don't get me going on your silly names for artists. His record was Limbo Rock. The limbo requires dancers to pass under a progressively lower bar on their feet while leaning backwards. I just did a little limbo. You didn't notice it because that's as far back as I go now. But anyway, <laughs> it had a slogan, how low can you go? Isn't that cool? It's a great Christian slogan when you think about the lowliness of Jesus Christ and being lowly as he is. Christian, how low can you go?